Welcome to Hogan Lovell's newest podcast, Digital Assets and Blockchain, The Influencers. We're bringing you interviews with some of the most interesting and thoughtful voices, creating change in the digital asset space and highlighting the trends and issues you should have on your radar screen. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Influencers Podcast. I'm delighted to be joined here today by Simon Taylor, an advisory council member and founder of Global Digital Finance, and also head of strategy and content at Sardine. Sardine's a fraud and compliance API that helps crypto and digital businesses prevent fraud. Welcome, Simon. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I've read a lot in the media recently connecting the recent banking collapses to the crypto space including back all the way back to earlier events like the collapse of FTX, maybe even going back to the Terra Luna implosion that was about 12 months ago now. So can we recap a bit on what's happened? And are these events connected? Did crypto or perhaps the even more nebulous DeFi somehow cause this? I can see why it looks that way. Um, there are certain politicians suggesting it is that way. Um, and in the mainstream media, these things often get commingled, as, as you say. Uh, I, I think there are fundamentally different things going on here. There are centralized businesses that happen to sell assets that are crypto. Um, that would be FTX and many others that have, by all accounts, very poor risk management, commingled user funds, and of course, saw run on those organizations. And I guess the similar story with the banks is there was a run on the banks, but those banks had different problems in that they had a concentration of deposits. One of those banks, in fact, maybe two of them had a concentration of deposits in the crypto industry. And of course, the crypto industry is going through turbulent times. And therefore, when it has deposit flight, it then saw a structural risk to its balance sheet um, as a result. I'm thinking about Silvergate and, and Signature in particular. However, the concentration of deposits is often poor risk management on behalf of the bank rather than uh, anything intrinsic to crypto. We know that industries are cyclical. Uh, this could happen to any industry at any time. And of course, Silicon Valley Bank is the more interesting case study here because whilst they did have some crypto deposit exposure, it was nowhere near the dominant part of it. It was actually mostly the tech sector exposure. Yes, their deposits did dwindle, but their ability to uh, kind of risk manage that and cover it with, uh, with adequate capital was also a big, big part of the problem. So that's not like FTX. It's a fundamentally different thing. Yes, some of these banks happen to bank crypto businesses. And yes, a couple of them were overly concentrated on that sector. But that's not something crypto caused. That's something the banks did. So you can't really point the finger at crypto for that. I don't believe anyway. Um, there are regulated financial institutions that took risk decisions with, uh, with, with, uh, with these funds. So different things. And then the DeFi thing is sitting out there absolutely fine. This is what nobody talks about is DeFi still running. It's still working. MakerDAO still works. Ethereum still works. Like no DeFi investor Realist outside of hacks, which is a different thing, really lost money on the lending or the capital side or the risk management side or a run on the bank. That's near impossible because it's over collateralized, which is a whole other conversation. But DeFi isn't the bad guy in this particular story. It has its own quirks, but it's not the bad guy this time. 
you know, it's interesting to think about, well, if the finger of blame is being pointed in the wrong direction, certainly in some, you know, of this kind of media focus, where does it better land? It's no doubt a combination of factors, but I've, you know, also, you know, we understand that there potentially is some of this criticism around the light regulatory environment mm. causing quite traditional liquidity type issues in the banking sector, you know, nothing so complicated as being connected to crypto mm -hmm. and DeFi. And in fact, the point that you make comparing the sort of ongoing stability in the DeFi space, and in particular, the liquidity in the space, you know, there are no liquidity problems in the DeFi space of this type. That comparison is potentially quite stark in the light of some of the sort of the failings in the traditional institutional sector are quite traditional issues and maybe some of those issues are better overcome in the in the in the crypto and digital space that's quite an interesting comparison yeah risk is risk is risk and you have to understand that um from 10 yards away uh DeFi and things that sell crypto assets look very, very similar, but they're actually things that look like trading venues, that look like banks, that look like uh, e-money issuers that happen to sell crypto assets or digital assets. Then there are things that are not, uh, that have no legal nexus or jurisdiction, that are open source projects that just run as software that happen to be able to custody funds or the user is custodying their own funds. And that's genuinely novel and that's interesting. And that has a bunch of properties to it that's really, really compelling. Like it's global, it's 24 seven, but it's also transparent in nature. In DeFi and in crypto, if we use it properly, we have a global record of every transaction ever. For anybody who's listening who's ever had to raise a suspicious activity report or connected to an anti-money laundering case and had to do an investigation or case management around AML or sanctions or PEPs or anything of the sort, they can tell you how incredibly difficult that is in the traditional financial system because we don't have a golden source. And what DeFi presents is an instantly searchable golden source and record of data and programmable transactions. That's huge for the traditional world of financial services and the regulated world of financial services. And that's why banks like JP Morgan Chase are working with the Monetary Authority of Singapore on things like Project Guardian to try and use the technology. The Bank of International Settlements is looking at automated market makers. This is a DeFi concept where you can automate market making in really interesting and unique ways. So. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here. Let's understand that the technology is not only valuable, but it could be genuinely transformative. But to your first point about sort of like, where does the blame live? I would say this is a curse on all of your houses. Um, from the regulatory standpoint, the easiest thing is to do nothing and try and capture it into the existing perimeter, especially if you're in a jurisdiction where it is very, very hard to get any new laws passed you tend to have to default to regulate by enforcement because you feel like you have no choice. In other jurisdictions that are more bureaucratic or fast moving, they have the luxury of passing legislation. And I think this is why you've seen that Europe has taken a lead with Mika and has quite a thoughtful approach. Uh, but the industry has also done great work in engaging through forums like Global Digital Finance 
to really actively, proactively educate um, the regulatory community and the, the political community on the nuances of this space, both the challenges and the technology. Um, so yes, a curse on, on sort of some of the challenges from the regulatory standpoint. Yes, a curse on traditional banking for getting traditional banking things wrong, but also the DeFi space does have to clean up its act. Um, I don't think it can be enough to say that um, caveat emptor, buyer beware, like everything is at your own risk here. We do need to be sensible if we want this technology to get adoption, that humans are humans, businesses are businesses, and that there should be safeguards and protections. How those are done might not necessarily have to copy and paste how it was done in traditional financial services. And I think that's a nuanced and important point. It is an important point. I mean, you know, there's a sense of trying to protect in the crypto and DeFi space to this extent that's protected in the traditional banking space as if that's a kind of mecca of protective regulation. And yet what you see when you kind of dig into the current unstable situation in the traditional banking space is that that regulatory environment still allows for problems to arise, collapses to happen. And then by connecting somehow crypto and DeFi in a, in a blame type scenario with those collapses, you're really minimizing our ability to see the potential for solving some of those types of issues. It, it's a pure scapegoating. It, it absolutely is. Um, so I've looked at the only available studies into anti-money laundering in the traditional financial services world. Um, there's some great research that suggests by the UN and others that suggests that anti-money laundering is uh, extremely ineffective at uh, capturing stolen funds or recovering funds um, that, that are proceeds of crime. Uh, and it's, it's incredibly poor at detecting it. So the suggestions were anywhere between uh, one and 2% of global anti-money laundering activity is detected and one and 2% of the funds of the detected activity are then eventually recovered. But now compare this with the crypto world where we hear every other week about a DeFi market or a hack. But what law enforcement has is a golden source of data to be able to go conduct an investigation. And that golden source is completely uneditable. Compare that with what we have with FTX, which is not DeFi, which is not crypto, and there were no records kept. And that looks like a bank that had poor internal record keeping situations. So this is this golden source is tremendous. And if you look at reports by Chainalysis and Elliptic and others, you'd see that the effectiveness of recovering funds and, uh, that have been stolen or hacked is anywhere up around 30%. Now to the policymakers listening, would you like to move the effectiveness of collecting stolen funds from 0.1% to around 30% simply by adopting a new technology? If the answer to that is yes, then please stop scapegoating DeFi. And in fact, to take the reverse um, perspective, I think it's important to reflect on how the traditional banking crisis potentially actually impacted the crypto and DeFi space. So I think the biggest story around the SVB collapse was the uh, large amount of funds that were held by Circle at Silicon Valley Bank. And that ultimately the uncertainty around whether or not those funds were going to be subsequently made available caused a DPEG on uh, USDC. And obviously that was a direct relationship between the instability in the traditional banking space, 
causing instability in an in an otherwise perfectly functioning crypto and digital asset space. Yeah, stablecoin is a bit of a dirty word amongst some in the, the regulatory and the policy space. And yet the stablecoin was absolutely fine. And the one that was arguably closest to buy the book uh, in circle, the one that arguably has the most credibility in the marketplace right now, the one that had backed itself with bank deposits one-to-one -one and uh, US treasuries, is the one that worked with an FDIC-insured bank and saw the bank collapse being the liquidity issue, nothing to do with stablecoins. That could not be more the opposite of Terra Luna. And so we, we, um, we tend to tar the whole DeFi industry with the same brush because it's young and there are lots of mistakes being made. And there are some genuinely uh, catastrophic examples like Terra Luna that those who work and live in the DeFi and the crypto and the digital asset industry would point out all along and go, yes, we, we think we agree with you. We think that's ridiculous. But you can't assign that to the entire category. Oh, well, humans have committed murder, therefore humans are murderers. It's, no, that's not logical. That's in fact highly irrational. Humans are capable of wonderful, beautiful things, as is DeFi. And so we should not compare it to its worst case. We should look at it on a first principles basis and say, how meaningfully do we make this get better? And I, and I hope we can do that. But yeah, the banking sector, I think, has baked in assumptions and legacy assumptions about how we adequately protect it. And those assumptions may not be correct. But unfortunately, policy is like sedimentary rock. Laws very rarely get repealed; they just get added to. So this is a this is a difficult situation for the industry. But I do think there's an opportunity to attack this space with uh, the best of the virtues of the technology that it is natively transparent, that it is natively programmable. What if we had a set of open source standards? What if we had a set of standards that could guarantee, on some level? or that could uh, use the software to guarantee on some level that a certain standard is being followed, that certain safeguards have been implemented, and we can audit that and verify that within the software itself. And because it's open, many people could audit it. So you create this completely different model of how audit works, of how transparency works, of how software works. That's a whole other conversation. How would that work? Well, you know, if you are interested, get in touch with us at Global Digital Finance. Uh, but I think there's a lot to do to start implementing some of this stuff. I agree. <laughs> there's a lot to do. And there's a lot about trying to use learnings from these traditional financial uh, markets issues and then applying some of the functionality in the crypto and digital assets space and looking at where we can almost leapfrog over trying to fix that traditional space by using some of the functionality in the DeFi and crypto space to solve some of those problems in a completely new way using this technology. It's a really important perspective to take on what's happened, to learn from these collapses, from the instability and the network effects, the environmental ecosystem effects, right? Where one instability in one space has this network effect at creating destabilization across more broadly and not just within um, you know, a single sector like we've seen in the crypto and digital asset sector, maybe leading out from Terra Luna all the way through last year up to FTX and beyond, but also across 
sector spaces. So now this example that we have of this traditional banking sector issue with the SVB collapse causing the instability in USDC and its DPEG, you know, and obviously that's recovered, that's all been recovered, but mapping those out and learning from those and understanding how the technology can help us to see those issues, you know, as risks before they actually come to the fore. That was the beginning of my conversation with Simon Taylor. Make sure you tune in for part two next time.